Hey, so on this episode of the podcast, we had on Matt the Broker from Michigan, and it was phenomenal. I mean, we talked about you know our backgrounds before real estate investing. We kind of talked about what we're currently doing, some of the deals that we're analyzing right now, uh, some of the ways that we're able to provide value to our students. You know, Matt is has experience in brokerage, and he's helped and he's coached people into buying properties, profitable rental properties. You know, I've from a tax perspective have helped people as well, and we were just able to really bridge our you know our connections and our network together and really put together something from you guys from a very uh, not just a high level but a more detailed perspective we went into uh, deal analysis kind of things to look for how to get properties appraised the way you want them to so uh, make sure you guys stay tuned and again uh, reach out to Matt or me if you have any additional questions and we'll see you guys in the episode Hey guys, before we get into the episode today, I really want to shout out my Facebook group, Tax Strategies for Real Estate Investors. So we have over 5,000 real estate investors in this group from all walks of life. We have long-term rentals, multifamily, midterm rentals, short-term rentals, commercial properties, syndications, and everything in between. We have people that are co-hosting in there. We have people that are property managing in there. So make sure to join today because we talk about all sorts of things between tax strategies and real estate management, portfolio management, and absolutely everything you can imagine. So if you have questions for me, this is the easiest way to get access to me is to join this group and ask your question. So without further ado, let's get into the episode. Hey guys, welcome back to the Learn Like a CPA show. Today we have a special guest, Matt. I originally met Matt actually in Las Vegas. I was speaking at a conference, STR Nation with Patrick Switek, and uh, Matt and I connected, kind of chatted it up about what we have going on in real estate. And Matt's an awesome guy. He's from Michigan, and I'm gonna let you, I'm gonna let him introduce himself. Hey, thanks for the uh, the intro here, Ryan. Um, so I'm Matt. Um, I started off as a real estate broker, mortgage broker, and over the last four years, I got pretty heavy into Airbnb. Currently, have 32 Airbnbs. Um, we host host for about 35 more um, under contract to buy 13 more right now. I have no arbitrage, no no rented properties. Um, everything is owned. Um, I'm a big on equity, um, and you know because of my background in mortgages and real estate, I've really got good at doing applying the Burr method to STRs. And that's been a huge win for us. Um, in fact, today, Ryan, we just got back uh, our appraisal on our 12 unit came in with $100,000 of extra value on that. We're actually gonna be looking at doing a, a raise for um, some partnership uh, positions for equity. Um, so yeah, if anybody's interested, feel free to reach out on that, but that's gonna be a fun topic to bring up later on. How, how long after you were a mortgage, so mortgage broker was your background, how long after that uh, did you buy your first investment? I started, good question, because some people think it's overnight, right? Um, yeah. I first started in long terms seven years ago, seven years mm -hmm. ago, and I actually just launched, relaunched my first long term. I converted it to a short term um, probably two, three weeks ago. We've already had five bookings. Um, so we're, we're on our way. We're looking at our first month launched as profitable. So that's pretty exciting. But yeah, long term was our, our first thing. We started in, so mortgages, got into uh, real estate sales, um, then rentals. And four years ago, a buddy of mine said, hey, this Airbnb thing could really could really hit. And so I converted one of my duplexes into an Airbnb. Uh, and mind you, like Michigan had, we didn't have AirDNA. We didn't have data. I just had to go with like, 
conscious like decision making. I, what would I do? How would I use this area? What can I? Is there other hotels, motels in the area? So I had to look beyond the data. The the data was non-existent, right? So that's been a lot of my method. And now over the last four years, we have more data in Michigan. So a lot of the things that I felt and saw and could quantify are now actually being shown in the number. So we've been ahead of the market in a lot of ways, but I still think Michigan's got plenty of runway left. Mm -hmm. I mean, it's almost good for you though, that the data is not as accessible, right? Because people aren't looking 100%. to invest yeah. in, in Michigan. So I'm from like Southwest suburbs, Chicago. So we used to always go to uh, like uh, South Haven, New Buffalo, St. Joseph for, uh, it used to be like after parties for prom or homecoming or whatever. So. I'm very familiar with like the, the rental market there. I know they're very strict on regulations, but I mean, you don't hear anybody trying to go to Michigan. Everybody's Smokies, Destin, 30A, they want to own rentals, you know, in, in desirable, more desirable markets, but nobody's, everybody's sleeping on these uh, Midwest markets. So I have uh, the largest Airbnb on Lake Erie in Ohio and kind of similar, you know, you're not really seeing a lot of investors try to get here for short-term rentals. How am I just now hearing about this, by the way? I want uh, to see that link. Let me favorite it. I like to, by the way, if you all have, uh, you know, great Airbnbs, um, I'd love to see them. Um, I like to save and heart them. It's also helpful for insights and getting the algorithm boosted. I'd love to help, help everybody out. Um, but also, if I'm going to be in those states, I want to I want to go stay at your places. Check them out, give some feedback. Um, but yeah, I'd love to do that, Ryan. Um, but yeah, the Midwest has been slapped on, to your point. Um, and a lot of people go, hey, I want to be in the Sun Belt states. Um, and I'm kind of, I'm kind of anti Sunbelt States. I like them. I have one in California. I have an eight unit in California, a little boutique hotel. Um, and it's done generally well. Coachella has been a great month. I think we did 40,000 in, in, on that one. So that's, that's going to be a good month for us. Um, but that aside, um, I still love Michigan. I, it taught me, I have, I have the right set of contractors, easy to deal with contractors. Um, there's still a lot of like forced appreciation opportunities here. Um, and the cash flows are great. So that's, that's been great. I'm, I'm sure that's why you've probably kept your Lake Erie property, right? Yeah. So how did you, so you said you have 35 that you own. How did you, cause I'm sure those, uh, I'm sure you capped out at your 10 conventional loans. How did you scale to that? <laughs> yeah. Just to clarify, it was 32, um, 35 is on its way though. Um, so, so a lot of people think that, um, the finance cap is is 10 and that's true for conventional lending if you're using non-conventional dscr um, non-qm you'll hear it's said a lot of different ways private money um, you have no cap so mm -hmm. our, my recommendation to everybody that's really trying to get into scale if you're looking to do 10 or more properties definitely reach out to me um, but if you're if that's your goal um, you need to figure out a product that is going to help you get there as fast as possible. So one of my big things is I use fix and flip financing. Uh, we get 90 to 100% financing on that um, at, through our brokerage. And because of that, we're always adding value. And then once the value is added, we do a cash out refinance also in a non-conventional uh, mortgage. And from there, we're able to just continue to scale. We just keep recycling our capital and that has made us move very quickly, right? So mm -hmm. that's how we do that. Excellent question, man. So that's something I want to get into later. I think we need to touch on a few things here. Let's talk a little bit about like, how did your, how did your 2022 end and what are some big life events that you had happened recently? Both of us got those, huh? Um, so 2022, um, that was the first year we broke a million in Airbnb, um, gross. 
and it was very exciting for us we were like wow. we did not expect to do that but i guess mm-hmm. you know we kind of like sat back and like oh yeah that is a number that's quantifiable based on how much we were doing per month and so this year we may double that um it's looking really exciting because a lot of ours got up and running last year um that beyond that um that's when we took down the eight unit hotel this year the well, I'll get into this year later. Um, and I also found out I'm going to be having uh, my first kid. It's going to be a baby girl due in August. So really looking forward to that. And how about you, man? What about what happened for you that was special in 2022? Yeah, uh, 2022, I'm just thinking about it. So I was at the time, uh, you know, that was my 2022 is my first year of like full time entrepreneurship. Uh, I'm mm-hmm. not going to go into specifics, but you know, I definitely say that I, I the goal that I had of the amount of money that I wanted to make, I like doubled it and almost tripled that that goal for 2022. And I, I never would have imagined, you know, if you would have told me a year, two years ago, I'd be doing what I do now. I love what I do and I love helping people. I would, I would have thought you were crazy that it could be achievable. But yeah, 2022 is my first year full time self uh, entrepreneurship. Uh, at the end of 2022, we close well. We were underwriting a $3.8 million ground up construction at Branson um, that we're just now breaking ground on. And then also uh, underwriting a $2.5 million RV park in Blackhawk, Colorado. Uh, the, the RV park we, we closed on in March. And so two big deals that I was underwriting at the end of 2022. And then in 2023, I'm kind of more focused on leaning in on the education and the consulting aspect of the business. So now being able to turn around and just amplify my reach. And that's actually one of the things that we just wrapped up the SDR Wealth Conference a few weeks ago from Nashville. And that was really my biggest takeaway was the way my voice is being able to be amplified through social media and through the Facebook groups and through my podcast is I'm able to just touch and reach and help so many people that I never thought I, I could help. You know, this guy, like, I kid you not, he came up to me in the bathroom and it, um, it's just a really weird thing where like people meet you That's in the bathroom the and they're like, somebody on a conversation. yeah, you're just hey, like, uh, do I shake your hand? Like, and this guy's like, he's like, dude, man, he's like, Ryan, he's like, you're Ryan, right? I was like, yeah, he's, he's like, he's like, I listened to your podcast, breaking down the difference between fixing and flipping and buying and holding and the tax implications of that. And he's like, because I listened to your podcast, I saved 22,000 bucks. And I joke with the guy. I was like, oh, okay, where do I send the invoice to? <laughs> and But it was just crazy to understand like the reach that I have. And so in 2023, I'm looking to kind of buy back some of my time so I'm able to amplify and spread out my reach a lot further than I currently am. Uh, I currently have a, a million-dollar property in Miami. It'll be my first property in Miami. And so we're going to close on that hopefully at the end of this month, if not early May. So those, that's kind of what I got going on. And uh, I am uh, engaged. I've, I've been engaged. I actually got engaged in 2021, but I'm getting married this year in September. So a lot that's of life awesome, stuff. That's awesome, man. Yeah. I think you sent me the, the Miami one. That looked, that looked really good. Nice yeah. call. Nice call. So and the wedding, that'll be exciting. Mm-hmm. A, lot of, a lot of great stuff afoot. Uh, congratulations, man. Really happy for you. I think it. Uh, a lot of stuff happens, I think, when you focus all your time and energy on what you love to do. Uh, so the way I teach that, and this is what I talked about in Nashville, is like your genius zone, right? So the genius zone is what you believe that you have the gift and the skills and God put you on this earth to do this specific thing. And for me, I, I feel like it was it's taking uh, topics that are extremely complex and breaking them down into something that everyone can understand. And so 
uh, the, the author of the book, The Genius Zone, talked about how people only spend 10% of their time, if that, in their genius zone and 90% of the time elsewhere that's not in their genius zone. And if you could figure out how to flip that so that way you're spending 90% of your time doing the things that you love, you're going you're gonna to get so much value out of that. You're going to make so much more money and you're just going to be able to help so many more people along the way. 100% man and it's funny kind of like going into I guess what I'm doing also for 2023 is a lot of that so I went to a, a good amount of conferences last year just like you did that's where I met you at a few of them actually uh, I think STR Wealth and then STR Nation mm-hmm. might have been something did you go to Rentalpreneur I can't remember no I did not shout out TJ <laughs> um, yeah shout out TJ anyway yeah, you did a great job. Really, really great. Um, so did Patrick. I mean, Bill, Mike, all those guys. Um, but uh, when I'm when I met you, I was kind of realizing for finding out things about myself I didn't know. I kind of I kind of started calling myself a groundhog. I felt like I'd been burrowing tunnels of Airbnbs um, for the last like handful of years, and I showed up to these conferences and people were like, you know, how many Airbnbs do you have? And I, I thought I was going to be one of the guys with, that was smaller in the, in the room. And then they're like, dude, why aren't you teaching? Why aren't you tell, talking to us about this? I'm like, I, I didn't know I did good. I just thought you're supposed to go out there and just execute, right? I had no idea that was like a good number. Um, so then I started like doing a lot of consulting last year. Um, as a real estate broker, a lot of people wanted to buy in Michigan. So I helped set them up and it was great um, but the one-to-one just became a lot and after a while i said i got to figure out some group coaching or something so mm-hmm. to your point you know the genius zone uh that's kind of what we've been doing this year and you know we're supposed to we're probably within two weeks of launching um i have been saying that a little bit too long lately but the mini course got finished up uh pretty much today uh and the main course is all written and mostly recorded so it's coming out quick but we're gonna be teaching you know the application of equity, understanding all the financial metrics, um, IRR, cash on cash, all that's going to be broken down into like digestible modules. And that's some of the stuff that you and I are going to be talking about, right? Like hopefully on the next uh, podcast or something, talking about how you really apply cash on ca- cash to a deal before and after um, you buy it and, and refi it because those metrics change, right? You you know, your net operating income goes down when you increase your mortgage expense, even mm-hmm. though you got cash back and understanding how that affects the cash on cash metric. And also your, your NOI is a big deal. You know, if you go from 2000 a month to 1500, that's a 25% reduction, right? But maybe you got 40, 50 grand back out and now you can go buy another property that's going to bring in another net 1500 to 2000. So that's how you get the scale going, right? And that's a lot of what I teach. I like to teach people, this is how you get to 10 or more properties. And that's kind of become the name of the game for me, like really emphasizing that with practical application, uh, using my own my brokerage because we have the properties, we have the lending, we have the construction company we launched this year. So depending on the area, we can even help with construction. So we're kind of like a done for you or at least taught everything to you type of situation. Yeah, I think that's so interesting. And that's my biggest point with people is your your cash on cash can be so persuaded by just the financing that you get, right? If I'm coming in with 25% down, basically a turnkey property, you know, my cash on cash is going to be a lot less than somebody who's, you know, buying it with a 10% down secondary home loan or, you know, mm-hmm. somebody who is not putting as much cash in the deal. And that's that's something that I wanted to get into right off the bat because I will say two things. The first thing is people are buying investment properties with really not understanding the numbers and getting the numbers to pencil out. Um, you know, there's like this guy just the other day who posted mm-hmm. in a Facebook group about how he was gonna, he's doing four new builds in a Florida market 
uh, and he's he's asking the Facebook group, what are the gross revenues of these properties in the area? And and it might, yeah, I know. My first thought was like, you haven't penciled you in a reverse engineer that, yeah. or you haven't like you haven't at least had an idea, you know. Now, mm-hmm. I always say to people this: I can I know where somebody is at their knowledge and their expertise by the questions that they ask. If you ask me a very sophisticated question when it comes to tax, I already know you're you're not at the top here. You're you're a little bit further down. But that to me is just like, how are you building four pro? And these are probably all you know eight hundred thousand million dollar plus bills. How are you building that many properties without at least having a good idea of a gross revenue figure? So I know there's the demand like that for the coaching, and there you know because there's people that are using real estate to replace their nine to five job, get out of their W2 that they hate, spend more time with their family, but we have to be doing it the right way. Yeah. And and I'm so glad you say that. And I I think that that's one of the reasons I really like your approach. Kenny Bedwell, we talk, we talk a good amount about like, what is, what is the net earnings? Like Kenny, Kenny, I think, uh, this isn't really a secret, but I think his, his, one of his metrics is he won't buy something unless it will net him at least $50,000 per year, right? That, Which that is, might be me. You might have heard that from me, though, too. I might have heard that from you? Okay. I think Kenny has a similar vibe. I'm pretty yeah. sure. But I, I'm kind of, I've grown into that thought, that thought and theory. And if I can't do that, at least I can get like 95 to 100% of my money out of the deal once I do the refi and I'm still netting a, a solid chunk and I can go rinse, wash, repeat, right? So it's like I have some situations where if, if it's a burr play, I don't need it to be 50. But if I'm just holding it, it's got to be at least 50. If I just bought mm-hmm. it with no option to add value. So I have a couple metrics and if then this situations. I'm, I know you understand what I'm saying because you have a financially driven mind, right? So and that's the thing. Like if, we can, if we can impart that knowledge on more people, I think they'll do really well. I've seen a lot of people. I talk about you know get into arbitrage. Arbitrage is the fast way to get in without capital. But truth is, you don't always need a lot of capital to buy either. There's a lot mm-hmm. of ways to do that if you have the right leverage mechanisms. Which like you know I'm, I won't be I won't be bashful about. We definitely have that. That's why I've been building this right. But if you have those things, you can get in with similar income. Like I actually did a study comparing an arbitrage that can make I think it was 2,500 net versus buying a property. Um, that would bring in about 2,800 net because I don't know what you factor in a mortgage. The mortgage is usually less than the rental payment. So let's say it just makes another 300 extra um, and you're buying it, let's say 250 for that range, similar furnishing setup. Um, the only difference is let's say you had for simple numbers, 25K more as a 10% down purchase, right? So mm-hmm. that's the only big upfront cost differential. Um, if you get a partner on that, you split that, that's 12 and a half a piece, right? That gets it a lot more palatable. Sometimes you can just find somebody that will happily lend you 10, 20, 30,000 anyway. You know, you just say, hey, I'll put yeah. you on. Let me get 5% on the money, and that's private money, right? So there's a way you could finance this with zero money. And let's say once you refi it, I think my number was like 340, 370 um, for the ARV, the after repair value. Um, once you got that done, um, actually, I'm not going to use the refi example, but I'll say I'll end it with this. After five years of owning it, presuming the landlord on the arbitrage example said, hey, we're done, um, versus you've got to sell it at um, a higher net uh, after five years of owning it. Let's say you sold it and you had a 40K net versus zero net on the arbitrage, right? At that point, I think you make 31% more money on your cash for the same holding period. Mm-hmm. So you got to figure if you can do that three times at the same time, that's almost 100% more of your money you know, coming back, right? So it's like there's so much value to getting the equity 
and the cash flow value and the tax savings. We haven't even hit, hit on the tax yeah, savings. Yeah, not yet. Right? We're saving that for the end. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Short and sweet, I think on the example, I think on a $100,000 presumed earner, um, I'd say comfortably 15K would be saved, like between mortgage interest, tax, you know, and all the other things. I'm like, if you do that five times over, it really starts to add up, especially once you get 10 units. Yeah. So, um, what was it? Yeah. So I've actually, I've been working on, so I have something in my tax academy program now that I call the global debt schedule. And basically what I have the students, people do, clients, um, they're going to list out all their property addresses, whether or not they own them in a partnership or maybe their sole owner. But I want to know, you know, who are they banking with? Who's their lender? How much capital or how much loans do they have with that lender? I want to know what their LTV is on that property. I need to know interest rate. I need to know uh, maturity date. But what I'm looking at, too, is to I'm also factoring in DSCR in there. But what I'm looking at is their the net equity of their property compared to the amount of net income after debt service that the property is generating. So, you know, I talked to somebody last week where they have a $400,000 of equity in a property in Arizona. So they bought for like 250, things worth 650, 700 now. They have $400,000, actually more than 400,000, but they have $400,000 of equity in a property. And because it's a long-term rental, it's only making them $12,000 a year net after after everything is paid off and so it's like you would have to you would have to rent that property out for for 40 years almost just to break even on the amount that you could sell it for when i say reposition reposition right whether you sell it you refinance borrow against it heloc 1031 into something new that like i'm not seeing a lot of people making that analysis so there's tons of people who have you know really appreciate properties and especially like california arizona texas area where they're literally losing money because not only is it 40 years, but that's not factoring in time value of money. That, that 14, 15 grand a year income stream that you're getting for 30 or 40 years decreases in value due to inflation every single year. And so I typically have a break-even point for a long-term rental for me is if you're, and again, this is, not, this is not cash on cash. This is not payback period. This is the amount of net equity that you have in the property, which means what you could sell and walk away with Divided by your net income, you know, for me, for long-term rentals, if that if that number there is more than like 13 or 15, I'm selling or I'm repositioning. For short-term rentals, it's like six or seven, just because understanding time value of money and the velocity of money and that I could put that somewhere else and it could work harder for me, right? You're, you're oh, like man. excited. <laughs> you would, I never get to talk to anybody about these words. <laughs> like yeah. usually it's just right and you know to, to all the people that are probably going what is velocity of money what is time value of money and it's it's funny it wasn't until the last few years that i really realized that the seven years of owning a portfolio i'm like wait a minute i'm only making 800 bucks a month on this rental like net and I'm like, it's not bad but i'm like wait a minute if i sold it right now that's another 30 grand if i if i if i switch that up i just increase my taxable discounts right like how, how much i can save my taxes in addition to that, I'm going to probably triple my net cash flow by buying the right property, right? Mm -hmm. And I'm also going from usually a D or a C market because most of my stuff was like basically it was more or less C market, C market. But I'm going to almost all A class level properties that have higher appreciation. Like, and plus, I think even um one thing I learned in your course because um, you shared some of that stuff with me. Thank you. Was Typically, the more properties you have that are in that three hundred to five hundred thousand dollar range, you have maximum net write-offs, like uh, taxable write-offs. Like so, mm -hmm. it's like when you factor all of those things, like you actually do want to have 
higher value properties overall. And I think right now that what's interesting is the 300 to $500,000 range from a market perspective is probably more attainable than, than people think because that sub 250, 300 range, that's all first time home buyers. And a lot of them are still trying to gobble that market up as a real estate broker. Um, we've done thousands of deals, right? And I've seen a lot of that market is still getting highest and best offers. I had a listing last weekend. We got six offers over asking. Um, and I was like, wow, that's that's incredible. But then I looked at it across the whole brokerage. I'm like, there was tons of highest and best offers mm -hmm. all in that range. So and like even on the 700 to 900, I'm still I'm starting to see more competition again. But I still think that 300 plus range, like you could still buy that at a discount if you can find if you can target properties that have you know, they need paint, they need floors, they need lighting, and you can negotiate a nice little discount on that, hopefully 20% or so. Buy that sucker up, and, you know, even if you, even if it comes back with a marginal gain in value, if you actually put that back on the market, people will gobble that up because there's a lot of people that are trying to become second-time home buyers right now, right? And they're looking for properties that are all all, all are all fixed up because they're trying to protect their cash position they'd rather finance it even though the the interest rates are terrible and that's another thing like with you and i we know how to finance properties even at the higher interest rates and still be profitable and that's mm -hmm. like that's such a skill that a lot of people are under underplaying because a lot of people are going oh my god you can't buy now you know interest rates interest, you know uh property values but honestly if you still find a way to reverse engineer the metrics just like the guy you mentioned the guy that's in florida building the four properties if you if he had approached from a the gross income or likely net noi perspective figured out what he can spend on that before he builds factored in the whole time of the project and yes. all still penciled out That'd be so much smarter. And you get, do not undersell your hold time on a project. Even setting it up is even like, I guess, as simple as an arbitrage. Like there's time to set that up. Some people take way too long on that. But hold time is a, is a big factor, I promise you. Especially what in is first your, um, What is your, on a per single family home basis, what is your lowest net income property per month? And what is your highest cash flow? If you just give me a. My lowest? Single family home. Probably 300 on one of my long terms. That's probably my lowest. Um, on my, I have 51 properties. I have 32 yeah. Airbnb. Let's do two then, Airbnbs. Lowest Airbnb. Airbnb. Yeah. Lowest Airbnb is probably 800 to 1100 um, per month. It's one highest of my first is... ones. Um, highest net on highest net on average. Not for like those outlier months that are kind of unfair to kind of share. Mm -hmm. I'd say probably. Probably forty five hundred net per month on average on, on on four and a half. Actually, two two of them. Yeah. How much more time are you spending in the four and a half one than the thousand dollar a month one? Oh, you know that answer, sir. <laughs> <laughs> it's exactly my point, right? It's like I uh, I see the setup. <laughs> like yeah. it is just so crazy to think and. Uh, I think this comes back to like those limiting beliefs. You know, we're walking yeah. through some some. Um, uh, her name's Jackie through our uh, program right now. And she started off by buying like three, $500,000 properties and they're all netting, you know, the same amount, 30, 40 grand a year, which is great. But then it's like, how do you scale to get out of your, you know, three, $400,000 a year W2? You're going to need 10 of those suckers to do that versus if she, she could have yeah. just started, you know, maybe instead of a $500,000 property, she, she grabbed a million dollar property that was pushing off 60, $70,000 NOI. It's going to be a similar amount of time. 
uh, one roof instead of two roofs, right? One cleaner instead of two. And, and so it just really puts things into perspective. Now, this is not to say that people should, um, people should just make that jump right into that big property, but understand good financial sense to be able to make that decision. Because the one, uh, one person that came up to me at the conference, he's like, what's the biggest jump that you ever made? And I said, well, I went from a $400,000 purchase price to a $2.5 million purchase price. And he's like, well, how did you get the confidence? And I said, well, once you understand numbers and you understand that it's a similar amount of time, you know, to talk with banks, lenders, to do a bigger deal than it is a smaller deal, it kind of broadens your horizon a little bit. You nailed that, man. You absolutely nailed that. It, and it's funny because like even like one of my best deals on paper percentage wise ever was I had a long term. We bought for 45. Um, we Airbnb beat it for a year and then the city got kind of crappy so we we're just like i'm sick of dealing with it and in general like the neighbors weren't that helpful so i said i'm gonna sell this and um level up to an in, into a nicer area that didn't have the same kind of restrictions we sold it for i think it was like 160 mm -hmm. so we had over a hundred thousand dollar profit on it and like that's proof of appreciation right it was, a, it was only like three four year hold so it's a really good equity play on that one for as little as we spent um but now it's like with some of the properties we have like Here's one thing people don't talk about, but also it's hard to quantify. When you have an Airbnb set up as nicely as some of us do, like when you really put, and this is shout out to one of my partners, Sarah uh, Glidewell from the Carwells with Emily. Um, great, great job. Um, we have uh, we have some properties that you design them so nicely that when you actually do the refi for the appraisal, it's off the charts. Because why you walked into like a glum when you bought it, it was usually vacant or kind of run down when you bought it or whatever, right? There's nothing attractive and calling to you. But sometimes with the right designing and furnishing, you walk in, you just have a completely different experience. You can actually influence emotionally the appraiser to go, oh my God, there's nothing this grand, this wonderful here. And mm -hmm. so whenever he has a chance, he or she um, has a chance to go up or down on a level when they're teetering on a comp that, you know, the, a comparable, they're probably gonna go on up on that, right? And so that's what happens. Like I, I'm actually starting to see where design and furnishing is actually impacting the property value more than just the rehab um, expenditure. If you, I, I hopefully that was consumable. Yeah, like a good, better, best, how the appraisers have, or, you know, fair, average, you know, yeah, good. Exactly. Uh, so let's talk, because that's actually something I wanted to get into is like how people are appraising these uh, single family homes, uh, short term rentals. So are you typically seeing, you know, the, because I know on this one particular deal that I was trying to do in Orlando, we, um, the, we were going to buy the property. So we had two options, right? So we could either buy the property and come in with the, let's say $200,000 of staging costs and furniture that we needed. So we're going to buy a million dollar, you know, uh, 11 bedroom short-term rental in Orlando, right? We could buy the million dollar property and then spend 200 grand out of our own cash to, to, to uh, stage it and get it set up. Or we could get the developer of the property to put the furniture in there for us and then for us to come and buy the property at 1.3 or 1.2. And then we're essentially lumping the, we're lumping the uh, cash outlay into the loan balance so that furniture cost instead of having to pay it up front 250 grand out of my pocket i'm able to lump that into the loan and amortize that and typically like the types of deals i do are dscr so it's, it's typically like a five-year arm that rolls into a 30-year am afterwards but the problem with the, that we found was that 
the the bank the way that they were appraising it is they weren't they were they were doing it separately so they were saying hey the property's worth a million here but this quarter million dollars worth of furniture because of it being a short-term rental that the bank wasn't going to appraise that property at 1.3 mm-hmm. they're going to appraise the property at 1.1 and then make us buy the furniture separate so i was curious what you've seen so it's a perfect example you went from $250,000 of cash expense um, you took a hundred off of it and converted it to loan basically. Right. Mm-hmm. And let's say you're doing 10% down. So that hundred thousand, you only paid 10,000 out of pocket for that hundred thousand. So that left 150 plus the 10 is 160. Right. Yeah. So like that saved, that saved a nice chunk of capital. Right. Which has also improved your cash on cash metrics. Um, so do I see people do that when able is the answer? Like, you know, mm-hmm. at the end of the day, just to your point, right. You needed to have, the value come in at 1.25 or three, right? For it to have worked. Um, and same thing on some of the properties we're buying. We bought a couple properties probably two months ago we're rehabbing right now. And when we, tr- we tried to build in a little bit of furnishing budget just with all the rehab costs and everything. Um, and I guess it's when we bought it, it was like two, 220 230 averages but the arvs are like 440 um so based on just what those numbers are alone it should be very rehabable uh, very uh burrable sorry um and when we do that refi we're going to be able to cover a good chunk of our if not all of our furnishing uh our furnishing costs um, and that's because we're, we're creating new bedrooms we're creating new living areas we're adding jacuzzis ev chargers these houses are going to be like next level modern day. Like what the hell? This 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 does not exist here in our cities, right? So by doing that, I think that we're really going to set some market um, premiums. And the thing is, on any property where 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 we're like, hey, you know, what? we didn't get the value we wanted out of it, and now we don't want to hold it as much, we just sell it. We just flip it. I was going to ask you that. Do you have a you have a spreadsheet that kind of calculates that too? Where it's like, is there a certain metric that you look at? Kind of how I was using. Because I use the net equity of the property, right? So fair market value minus outstanding loan balance. Divide that by what I think the property will net after debt service. So if the, if the property is going to you know make make thirty grand a year and I got three hundred thousand dollars of equity in it, that's a ten year basically break even. To me, that's too long. I'm going to sell that, or I'm going to get rid of that, or reposition somehow. You know, I haven't done it with that approach. That's a really smart approach, though. I like. How that. do you do it? Um, I. Let's let's say let's say in order for us to hold it, we're gonna have like I guess I guess we are kind of doing that. If I have more than ten percent of my money still tied into the value of the property stuck stuck in there, then I start to consider it. Mm-hmm. Um, and if I just love the house, I know it's gonna be like a, a nice cash flowing property, and it's gonna make like it depends on what where my buying bracket is, I guess, on the actual deal. But um, generally speaking. There, the when you do a refi appraisal, right? They can only use past sales comparables, right? And they have no no idea of what the current market demand is, because why? You don't have a buyer. That's the biggest difference. That's what a lot of people get confused on. Like you, sometimes you go, I know this home is worth this. It is on the open market, but it's not from a refi perspective. Mm, but if you have somebody true. that goes and offers, let's say you have a property, the one point two or one point one, you have right. Mm-hmm. Um, the Orlando we were talking about, and let's say refi comps are at like, get you're getting one point one. That's or you know that's where you're at. Um, then you're kind of stuck. Now, if you know that everything in the market is being um, 
all the new active inventory is showing at 1.3, 1.5, and there's nothing for sale on the 1.1, you know that obviously you're it, presuming you're, you know, similar build and all that similar finish to the 1.3, 1.5s on the active market, you know, there's a good chance you'll probably get that value, right? Yeah. So if you can clear two, $300,000 for, I you know, possibly, then maybe that's when you want to approach that. And, you know, and that's the thing, like sometimes just if I'm not really sure what the market's doing before I'm doing a refi, like I might put a property on the market and just, just see what happens. Like if I get some crazy asinine offer because there's such little supply and such massive demand, that might make my decision up for me. Like on the property I was telling you about, if we get north of 450 on, on when we go to list it, we're, we're just going to sell it. It's going to be too nice of an, of an equity, like win mm -hmm. where we can go and now reinvest that into some nice bigger multifamily and lakefront property we've been wanting to take down. But if it doesn't, if it comes in a little shy, but we still have like nearly a full burr, we'll probably just keep it. But that, again, it's like without knowing the marketing element of what the buyers are, who are out there and ready to buy, you, you kind of, you're not, you don't have a full perspective. Um, and that, and that's where you're going to see those differences with, between the refi appraisal versus the purchase appraisal. Sorry, I know they got a little off topic. No, that um, makes a lot but, of sense. Though. I, I didn't really think about it like that, but um, it's actually a really good segue into what I wanted to talk about earlier is the, when you, when it comes to determining what you could sell your property for. Uh, so this guy actually yesterday or it was last night, he posted in, he posted in the uh, build short term rental wall Facebook group, 25,000 people in there. You, you go in there. I'm an admin, uh, shoot me a message. I'll approve you right away. If I don't like you, I'm gonna decline you. But, um, he posted in the group. He's like, Hey, I got this. I got this short term rental, single family home. I don't know how many bedrooms but it was in like Door County, Wisconsin that I've never heard of before. And he's like, it's generating $92,000 a year NOI, net operating income, that's what he said. Now, you know, I need to make sure that people think NOI means the same thing as me because when I hear net operating income, you know, that can mean a few different things. Could that be a net operating income before debt service, after debt service, right? Some people confuse that with like gross revenue and like, anyway, so he's like, hey, what is this going to appraise at? And there was a bunch of people in there commenting like, oh, you know, you know, so if I'm going to buy that, I'm going to say, oh, it'll generate me 90 grand a year for, you know, let's just say I can generate 90 grand a year net income for five years. What am I willing to pay for a $90,000 a year cash flow stream, right? Well, I chimed in and I said, no, look, this is how they're going to appraise it. It's a single family home. It's zone residential. They're going to appraise that based on sales approach. They are going to look at reasonable comps in the area that just sold similar bedroom count. They're not even going to factor in the idea that it was an Airbnb. Now, what what a buyer is willing to pay for that, and what the bank's willing to appraise it, or what the bank's going to appraise it for, and a buyer's willing to pay are two different things. Now, that's if your buyer wants to come out of pocket for more money than the appraisal. But I guarantee that if you have a single family home that's zone residential, it is going to be traded based off sales and not um, income approach. So that's accurate, like really 99% of the time. There's some properties that are zoned residential commercial, and sometimes okay. you can actually get a commercial approach. Um, but some banks, if you have enough data and they're willing to work, they're usually smaller credit unions and things like that. Sometimes mm -hmm. they will actually approach it as a commercial um, valuation. But from a sale to per person A to person B, um, you're absolutely right. Like, And I, I, you're so right on the NOI factor, like whether or not it's... Um, it's factoring in the debt service, the mortgage payments, right? Um, like for me, I don't pitch, FYI to people, 
the reason they don't always factor in the mortgage service, the debt service, mortgage payment, um, is because not everybody's mortgage will be the same. That's the number one reason why they don't do that. Because you could, is it a mortgage on 50% or 90% of the property? Is it, what interest rate did you get? What terms did you get? Was it, and it, usually it's dependent on FICO scores, credit yeah. scores. Financing, yeah. So it could be a, a, a multitude of, of reasons why. And that's why they started to not, well, not started. They typically don't factor that in. Now, for my purposes, because I am I emphasize a big push on leverage, um, I always factor it in. So that's always what I'm doing. I factor in max LTV available for the property. That's what I do. Uh, but I'm usually also like basing on like a debt service ratio type of loan um, that's going to be contingent on the property being able to support itself. So... Like typically at that point, you know, your credit isn't a factor, but it's not as big of a factor as long as you have decent credit or, or better. So well, um, you bring up a good point, because if he is able to find an investor that buys that property, the investor might choose a bank to fund that that will value that property based off its income approach of what it could generate, right. you know, discounted cash flows. But obviously, if, if he's finding a, if the buyer is, a, you know, they just want to own a single family home and it's a primary residence, they're going to get a traditional conventional mortgage or whatever. It's going to be based off sales approach. So, and that, that is the biggest takeaway. So I've been going to these, like, um, I've been going to these local real estate meetups in Chicago. So it's funny enough, I was, I started, tra I traveled the country to do short-term rental meetings. So, you know, anywhere, Florida, Arizona, California, um, Texas, Nashville, I've been everywhere doing short-term rentals, but I just started going within the last year, I started going in my own backyard at these local Chicago meetups and I normally don't really pay much attention to the fix and flip guys because I, I don't, um, yeah, you know, I'm not in here to get rich quick. I'm, I'm more of a buy and hold person. But the one thing that I learned from this fix and flip meetup was that you have to understand buyer persona of who you're actually targeting that to. So this guy, he came up to the meetup. He's like, hey, I'm going to fix this uh, four bedroom house in West Garfield. Uh, it's worth 230 now. I think it's going to be worth 320, 330 after I fix it up. And the guy, the, the presenter of the group is like, that's great, but you have to understand that who in, who in West Garfield, which is like one of the poorest neighborhoods in Chicago, who's affording a $350,000 loan? And the guy's like, oh, right? Because it really has to be an investor who has deep pockets, somebody that can be able to afford that house. You're not going to be able to get somebody who makes dollars $40,000 a year, even on an FHA loan, that's going to be able to afford that house. And so that's one of the things that I learned about like... Uh, from what I've learned from the fix and flipping is you really have to understand your buyer on the, on the other end and you know, how that market changes, right? If I, you know, what is it? Every 1% the interest rate goes up, your property loses, you know, 10% of its value. And so you really have to understand like who your buyer persona is, because if I, if I pay $300,000 for a house and my, and the interest rate ticks up 2%, you know, what does that do to my home's value? Like what somebody's willing to pay for that or they'll get a loan on, I should say. So there is truth in all of that, but there is an antagonist of truth too. So there's the <laughs> other side of it, right? Um, so like I've seen markets where this, the main city that's been the attraction hub, right? Um, Houston, Chicago, um, Birmingham, Royal Oak for Michigan, I guess, you know, like those, like the nice cities. What happens is the ancillary adjacent cities, they start to expand, they start to grow too, right? Uh, the values start to, because people go, I want to live here, but I can't afford it, so I'll go to the, the cheaper city just adjacent to it. So I'm not we're sure about the location. You said Scarsborough? Is that what you said? West Garfield. West oh, Garfield, I'm sorry. Um, so I'm not sure how approximate that is. And yes, probably the average 
like to, to that one flipper's point, the average buyer in that market might not be down for it. But the person that wanted the adjacency to whatever is nice and closest to that, maybe they are willing to go to that new neighborhood and treat it like an up and coming. So I've seen that also be a factor. If the, if the values there are damn close, then it could, you could set new record comps, which would create the opportunity for the lending to be available. And then that city could explode. Well, I use like uh, one of the properties, like the property that I have in Ohio, for example, like, you know, I paid 200,000 for it, put 20 grand in and let's say it kicks off 40, 50 grand a year NOI. You know, people are buying properties in the Smoky Mountains for six, 700,000 that are doing that same $50,000 NOI, right? So how is me like, because if I go to sell that house, it's going to be valued based off the sales approach. I'm probably going to get a quarter million for that house if at best. What do, how do I pivot and how do I somehow get a loan that's going to be based off the income approach of that property rather than the sales approach? Consistently, I don't have an answer. Oh, Sometimes, though, if you again, with you go to smaller banks, local, lo, hyper local banks close to that property, they may be willing to value it, but you're going to have to make a pitch. Um, I've only seen it happen a few or heard of it happening a few times when you actually make a pitch for how this property has been producing. Usually they want to see like two years of data so you can see it's been it's business. It, the business has been functional for that long. Um, then you might be able to make an argument that the commercial asset would be backed by X dollars. You might it might not be at, you know, 80 percent LTV, maybe at 70, 75, but it is possible. It's definitely possible. And it could take some kind of income approach at that point based on a cap rate which we brought up earlier too, right? Um, and cap rates for STRs and hotels get handled differently than long-term rentals. So that's another thing to keep in mind. Um, God, I had one other thing I was gonna tell you. Uh, the, I think one other takeaway from the flippers, which I never intended to be a flipper. I'm kind of, I, cause I, I'm to your point, I'm a holder. Like I, I flip it and I hold it. Um, and I'm seeing a lot of the people do the build to rent model now. If you have the money and the experience, that's a good route for sure. Um, but in that, I think the biggest and fastest way to get to scale is to get into a habit of buying and creating assets. And at that point, like, not, like I can't imagine not being able to create this wealth. If I had to start over tomorrow, I know I could, I could get right back here within a year or so. Like that's kind of the thing. And I'm sure even with your experience of where you are with your taxes and what the world needs and, you know, becoming an entrepreneur in uh, 2022, you probably have a new route to how you can create better success in short-term rentals in your tax business. I'm saying with me and my real estate sales and my real estate brokerage, my mortgage brokerage, my, my real rental holdings. Like I, we, you kind of learn those things. And if only we could impart all that data and knowledge into people that are looking to get ahead because I don't know about you, but I didn't grow up with Silver Spoon. We grew up broke, 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 broke. Bad, bad news bears. Detroit born and, and raised. Um, did not. <laughs> bad news lions there. Yeah. Uh, bad news lions for sure. <laughs> oh my do you, god. Do you want to get into some of the tech stuff for your app? Yeah, yeah. Let's okay. definitely get into tech stuff. So I mean, we've been chatting a lot about it, and uh, so I tell people all the time, it's like I don't sell as tax strategy, but I sell financial freedom, and the idea that. Um, I'm gonna I'm gonna allow people to get to their goals quicker, whatever they want to do in life, fast because they're saving money in taxes. Whether it's you know even ten thousand dollars a year, you get somebody that's making one hundred fifty thousand dollars a year and they're able to save ten grand a year. That's that's a lot. That's like ten percent of their income, you know. But even some of the bigger clients, I'm able to save them fifty, hundred thousand dollars a year. That's just gonna get them to their goal a lot quicker. So uh, we've we've been doing tax strategies for you know full time real estate professionals, whether you're in long term, short term 
rentals, commercial buildings, recently kind of got it dove into a little bit into hotels and uh, some assets looked into like solar credits and other types of things. So uh, what has your, been your experience so far? I mean, learning from me and other people. Oh man. Well, I'll, I'll start with when I realized I had a tax problem. Um, it was back when I was uh, doing mortgages when I first got out of college and was, I went from like 39,000 or something a year was my, my starting salary uh, to like 260 in like a year and a half. So it was a major jump up for me. But then I saw an $80,000 tax like total by the end of the year. And I was like, what is that? And then I realized that's like more, almost probably just over a third of a year that I didn't work for myself in a way, you know, I, I worked for the guy, I felt like I was working for, to give it away to something. And I was like, I'm happy to pay some taxes, but 80 grand, I'm not sure. A third of my year went to that of my total income is what I was looking at it like. And that's when I realized, okay, it's time to get my tax like game up. Right. So I started working with, you know, accountants. I stopped messing around with like the little, you know, no, 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 no hit, hate on, I, I use TurboTax. TurboTax has been good. But like there comes a point when, especially as you get into rentals and becoming more of an entrepreneur, you need a, a professional that understands those, those, those buckets of, of where you can like hedge some of your tax costs better. And you know, you're obviously one of those people, right? Um, like understanding when you apply, um, well, I, don't, I, I won't get too deep in that. That's your, that's your neck of the woods, right? But my point here is after realizing I needed to get deeper into into self-employment. I started seeing I was saving probably thirty thousand dollars a year once I went fully um, uh, self self-employed. Um, I think on my first good year, I was like I made like a hundred twenty or something as a as a real estate agent, um, and I saw that I only paid twenty seven or so twenty seven. I was like, okay, that ain't bad. We're get we're get we're getting in a better direction now. Yeah. And then we, you know, after this last year though, because I had so many Airbnbs and so much depreciation and so much rental loss from things being, you know, ready, but not quite ready. Um, we didn't pay much at all last year. And honestly, I was like, wow. I went back to my council. I'm like, you can back all this. Like, this is good. They're like, yep, I can back it. We're ready. Like bring it on. I'm like, all right, well, cool. (laughs) Uh, If if that's good, then that's good. And it's like that, but that's where I think, and to a, to a value perspective, like some people freak out about paying an accountant two grand, five grand even. But if that accountant versus going to some kind of generic tax done for you place, even if you're paying them 10 times the amount, let's say you're going to your normal like little, you know, uh, uh, small shop or I, I can't think of the name. I don't want I want to blast these places. Some little small shop that does taxes, that's kind of like a franchise, right? I'm trying to say it without saying it. Uh, and let's say you pay them 500 bucks and you get some all the generic discounts, right? And maybe maybe it brought your your adjusted gross, well, your taxable income down by to like 22% or something. Well, and maybe that ended up being 20 grand. So $500, you save 20 grand. But let's say you went to a professional that really understands like all the codes out there. It's not necessarily loopholes, but they're codes, right? And if you don't know how to apply them and when to apply them, then that's when you mess out. And let's say you spent five times that. You spent $2,500 on the right CPA. But now you didn't save twenty grand. You saved forty. Hands down. 
Hey, even if it was, even if it was 27, I'd still do it. Cause I still uh, overall net was still far better using the professional that's well-versed in this rather than the gen- the generic person as you get deeper into real estate is it's just, I don't believe it's wise. That's yeah. My opinion. And that's a good point that you bring up too. Cause uh, the, some of the most successful people that I know in real estate that, you know, uh, eight figure net worse, they're always like, I know what I know. And then I know people in the space that know what I don't know, whether it's like legal counsel, help structuring a deal, accountants, you know, the, everything, right? Like they know exactly what they know. And it kind of goes back to that genius zone. And then it's about finding other people that kind of are there to help you in, in their craft because they do that day in and day out. Like that's all that they do. 100%. Absolutely, man. And even some of the knowledge you dropped in your course and on some of your, uh, your, spreadsheets was was very sharp and astute and i think that that also helps visually formulate the approach and how how beneficial it can be like paying more for a cpa is not it doesn't just mean you're just paying more you might be getting a lot more value too but of course you don't you're not obligated to go with anybody you know vet them talk to them about your perf, your you know you i think what i did a couple times i think this is fair to say Take your returns, tell them your, you know, your, maybe even if you have a, uh, a current PL or like some kind of uh, current performance of your business or wh- whatever you're doing, even if you're employed, take that to a, three CPAs that you're curious about. Say, here's where I'm at. Here's what my returns did last year. Let me know if you spot any things that we could have done differently and how we would handle it in the future. I think that's a pretty fair thing to do. And some will really, if, either way, you're going to get educated from three different perspectives. If you feel most comfortable with one, go with that person. Yeah. Yeah, we do. So I've been doing like a lot of sort of value on the front end to kind of position people where I think they'll fit best. So we kind of have yeah. kind of what I've been uh, talking to you about is kind of like the DIY model, the do it with you and then the do it for you type where, you know, if you're just kind of getting started in real estate and you want to learn about tax strategies, but you're not ready to d- uh, dive right in on the full consulting, you know, we have a, I know I have a course or I have a product for you to self-study, kind of learn on your own and then um, come to me with any sort of questions that you have, right? Because again, I can judge somebody's knowledge and expertise by the questions that they ask. And then once you're kind of ready to take that next step, that's where I kind of have the group coaching offer where it's, hey, you go through a much more advanced course. We're going to do templates, the global debt sheet, everything that I need to know about you. And then come to me with your questions that you have. And then if you're actually looking for the sort of the done for you product, that's a that's a higher tier offer. And that's going to, uh, you know, require less of your time, but it's going to obviously cost more money. So and I, I pride myself in doing a good job of I understand my consumer and I understand where they're at and I can best um, guide them to a specific product because it's not always a lot of what the value based pricing is, is looking at a consumer and saying, I can put you in the right category because I've dealt with people that have your same exact background. Yeah. Well, that's that's awesome. I, I think a lot of people. I mean, you've already. You, every time I talk to you, you share something like pretty profound with me, and, it, and I've been I've dealt with quite a few accountants at this point. So you know, it's been really fun to meet you and get to understand like what your knowledge and depth basis is, especially the fact that you're in the STR space and you own them. Like, yeah. there's something. To, trust me, I've got one accountant. I love them to death, but trying to talk to them about what we're doing in short-term rentals and asking for like write-offs for this versus that. It's just like, it's just like a wall. I'm like, how do you not see this? This is so commonplace in this industry. I, that everybody can't be talking out of their ass. Right. Mm-hmm. And just not you understanding it. So um, like there can't be like, I can't know six CPAs in this STR space that all say this is 
viable and reasonable and you say it's not so that's that's why it's good to explore and find something that's the best fit for you maybe it's right so where where can listeners on the podcast find you um you can find me uh in michigan uh if you're if you're looking for more information uh you can check out the tiktok or my uh, instagram facebook whatever it's all pretty consistent youtube um my broker matt m-y-b-r-o-k-e-r-m-a-t-t um if you're interested in coaching or being a part of our new uh course coming out that's called str legend um check it out in our stan link um on instagram and tiktok awesome man thank you Cool. Appreciate it, man. Great job, Ryan. Thank you.